Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Wonder and Rigor. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by Natalie Nixon, Ph.D. Natalie changes lives through ideas so that people can build their creative confidence for years to come, make an impact, and get paid their worth. She's a creative strategist, global keynote speaker, and author of the award-winning The Creativity Leap, Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation, and Intuition at Work which has been recognized as a game-changing innovation book by Fast Company, Porchlight, and Soundview. As president of Figure Eight Thinking, she advises leaders on transformation by applying wonder and rigor to amplify growth and business value. Natalie shares her journey from growing up in Philadelphia to receiving degrees in anthropology and fashion, to her career in academia, to launching her own business, to releasing her book, The Creativity Leap, Natalie shares the power of daydreaming, which makes me feel a little bit better about how I spent most of my second grade. Natalie and I nerd out as we talk about creativity, design, chaotic systems, which combine chaos and order, and how she elegantly weaves all of these together with the concepts of wonder and rigor. Links to her Wonder Rigor Lab and Wonder Rigor Tip Sheet can be found in the show description. Through the lens of improv and jazz, We explore the value of creativity in many forms, including the power of the remix. I appreciated Natalie's insights and perspectives on creativity, wonder, and sense-making. It was an honor having Natalie join me on the show. I hope you enjoy the episode. Natalie, thanks so much for joining me. Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. If you don't mind, for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, thank you, Matt, for having me. It's a real pleasure. I love the whole concept behind your podcast. Um, I am from Philly. I have a really loopy background in anthropology and fashion, and I left a 16-year career in academia to build out my company, Figure Eight Thinking. So I, I am a creativity strategist, and what that means is I advise leaders on transformation by applying wonder and rigor to amplify business value. Um, and I love what I do. That's great. Uh, and I really appreciate your work. I know we'll, we'll dig in a little bit more, but uh, what was it that, and I know, I know taking the leap, right? But you have the, the book Creativity Leap. But what was it that um, in you that decided to make that leap, make that switch from, from a, a career in academia to going off on your own? Well, you know, I, I shared a while ago now, I could probably reshare a variation of the story. Um, the moment when I realized I needed to make a shift. So I'm a sort of person who's never had a five-year plan, definitely not a 10-year plan. I literally have um, shifted and made decisions about crossroads by following my heart. 
And I credit my parents uh, with, with, with that uh, emboldened way of, of uh, living my life. When I was a sophomore in college, and I was going through that first world problem of uh, what, what should I major in? Um, I called home all upset and my parents through a series of questions. They finally said, well, what are you, what are you like? What are you enjoying? And when I confessed that it wasn't like what I thought the time would be in a more impressive sounding practical major, I said, I love anthropology and Africana studies. And they said, almost at the same time, that's what you should do. You should study what you love. And my pop said, if you study what you love, and you do what you love, you're going to have to turn away opportunities. And so thus began my process of always tuning into my heart. And so fast forward, uh, I at this point was that had been a professor for uh, almost like 15 years. I was doing my dream work of I had created and launched something called the Strategic Design MBA program. It was a passion project. I loved what I was doing. I felt like I was making a small dent in uh, the, the, the curriculum of, of higher education MBA programs, it was a, a design thinking centered MBA program. And I was also really overwhelmed um, and overloaded with work, didn't have a lot of infrastructure support. And the moment that uh, catalyzed my making my most recent leap was I was at a photocopy machine. It's about 4.30 in the afternoon. I had finished making the photocopies. I knew that what laid in front of me at my desk when I, as I was walking down the hall was I had to grade five more papers. I had to return three more calls to prospective uh, candidates for the program. I had to also cram in an after work event to help market the program. Um, I had to stop by my mom's. Um, and I heard myself say out loud through clenched teeth, I don't want to do this. And I got to my office, I closed the door, I sat down, I said, oh no, it's happening again. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna, I've had one of those crossroads. So, so, you know, that's, and then it took me a year and I'm, this is a Cliff Notes version. I've actually now created a course, which I prototyped in the winter called Your Creativity Leap, but I now uh, have, have made some iterations. It's called the Wonder Rigor Lab, but it's all about the creativity hacks that I applied to myself and a lot of things taken from the book, The Creativity Leap, to help people shift. And I always say that if you're 50% terrified and 50% exhilarated, then you should leap. And the reason I think that formula works is because the terror anchors us. The terror makes sure, makes us, makes us be certain that we dot our I's and we cross our T's. And the exhilaration keeps us buoyant and optimistic and dreamy and hopeful. And you need a little bit of both. That's great. Thank you so much. Uh, just coincidentally, uh, you know, I my academic background was very much kind of steeped in more uh, liberal arts. And uh, but I do I adjunct I teach an innovation class at the University of Iowa that is deeply rooted in design thinking and human centered oh, nice. design. So yeah, we it's in the school of business, but we focus on the human side of innovation from understanding all the humans in the ecosystem and their needs. And so I a big fan of your work and uh I appreciate too the uh the wonder and uh rigor lab that you've described because I know those are those are two themes that you talk about a lot 
And from the surface, those might feel, especially when we think about creativity, uh, like kind of in more popular press, right? But it, those might feel like dichotomies. Uh, they might feel mutually exclusive. Can you talk to me a little bit about why those are important to balance or, or even how you brought those, those terms and labels together? Yes, well, I am a global keynote speaker. I really use my speaking to prototype ideas. Every time I have an opportunity to speak, you know, I'm customizing the message according to the needs of the client and the audience, but I, I'm also tinkering with new ways to think about a concept, deliver a concept. And I was, I, after I left academia um, and I dreamt up my job title, I made up my job title, creativity strategist. I've never met a creativity strategist, but it, for me, it really honed in on what I love and what I'm really good at. Um, and I focused my expertise really on building up a robust amount of work and writing about creativity, uh, less about innovation. And we can talk more about how I distinguish the two, but, um, gosh, I just forgot your question. Your, your question was yeah, about how, no. oh, how I landed on that definition. Excuse yeah. Me. And how you balance those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so I was always experimenting with like, how can I create a way for people to think about creativity that is accessible, that is simple and that doesn't conflate creativity only with art or design or, or the arts, right? Because how many times have we heard people mutter under their breath, oh, I'm not a creative type because I can't, you know, fill in the blank, sing, paint, draw, dance, act, whatever, right? And that really misses the point. It just so happens that artists are outstanding at wrestling with the ambiguity of process, which creativity requires. Um, but if we only ghettoize creativity in the arts, that's actually not fair to artists and it's not beneficial to our society at large. So I actually, the way I landed on the definition was through a very loopy iterative process, but one of the stages for stage one, unbeknownst to me at the time was I had decided to earn a PhD while working full-time. And that delved me into this whole area of work around improvisational organization. So I got really into complexity theory, chaos theory, complex systems, improvisation. And I was looking at it through the lens of jazz music. So that was kind of chapter one. The next phase was I, as I was building out this strategic design MBA program, I was hearing um, from a lot of startup leaders as they would tell their origin stories, this reference to intuition. I mean, they weren't calling it intuition, but I kept hearing things like, oh, um, um, something told me not to do the deal. Something told me, or something told me to work with her and not him, even though her pedigree wasn't as snuffy. And I thought, what's that something? You know, they keep on referring to this something. And I said, I think my hypothesis is that that's intuition. Um, and then I nerded out and I was like, ooh, what if I could do like a miniature ethnography on intuitive leadership? Who would I want to talk to? And so I, I just, it was like a side hustle. So it's like side project I was, I was exploring. And I decided to look at DJs, chefs, uh, dancer choreographers and um, first responders. And, um, you know, I just, because I figured these are people who um, it, who have to follow the nudge. They have to intuit. They have to, as I, I, I think of intuition as pattern making, pattern finding, excuse me. So, um, you know, for a DJ to move the crowd, they're totally intuiting constantly. A chef, you know, improvising and intuiting and so but it was what i would be watching um different dance rehearsals um and seeing choreographers at work with dancers one thing that's very clear if you go to a dance performance a professional dance troupe dance performance 
the discipline shows through literally in their bodies. Like clearly there's been a lot of rigor and that's how I kind of landed on, you know, the rigor part. And I was like, okay, so these are super creative people. There's an incredible amount of discipline and we've all gone to musical performances, dance performances where um, the performer might be technically proficient, but maybe it doesn't hit us in the heart. It doesn't, it doesn't resonate with us. And so I was like, there's that other element that's necessary in creativity. Yeah, there's the, there's the practice, there's the rigor, there's the, there's the time on task, but there's something else. And I kept tinkering with it. And then it occurred to me, I said, I think it's something like wonder. And then I started exploring what wonder is about. And I, I thought about it like having attributes of awe and audacity and deep curiosity and, and asking what if all the time. And, and, um, and then by then I had left academia and I, so I'm trying to test out this concept, but I'm also in these more corporate environments. And I, and I thought to myself, gosh, I will, I will, they will throw me out the building if I lead with creativity or if I start asking them about wonder, but I will usually be at the end of a session or an end of a meeting. And I would start to tiptoe into this conversation. And what I started observing as as soon as I started talking about this idea of like wonder and rigor, they relaxed, their faces lit up. They, they leaned in, they wanted to talk about it more. And I thought to myself, there's something here. There's there, I'm, 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 I'm naming something that people are identifying with. Maybe they previously didn't have a word for it, something that they're, that they're yearning for. And so then I, unbeknownst to me, I realized, hang on, the way I'm even thinking about creativity is linked, is rooted in the way all the things I learned about improvisation, right? A chaotic system, chaos and order, wonder and rigor, right? So sometimes as we are finding our way through our work, there's so many, you know, seemingly loose threads, which actually aren't loose. We just haven't like woven them back into the fabric yet. Like they're, which is okay. Like my mom is a weaver. I, I grew up, um, so a lot of, little girls sit the backseat playing with dolls. And me and my sister, we, we had our own little homemade um, looms, little lap looms. <laughs> We'd be in the backseat doing you know, a plain weave. And so, you know, as you're doing different patterns, adding different colors, there's certain threads in yarns that actually are out there until you're ready to bring them back in. So the way I landed on this definition of creativity being about toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems came out of um, you know, rigorous, intensive study for my PhD. It came out of deep curiosity and observation, listening to, to origin stories from startup leaders. It came from me hacking my own little ethnographies and figuring out new ways to explore intuition. And then um, that's how I landed on it. And then I got more and more courageous to start speaking about it earlier in conversations, leading with it. And, you know, my confidence built as I saw people's responses to uh, that way of thinking about creativity and, and how it actually really did democratize the way we could think about who gets to be creative and who actually is creative. Yeah, that's, that's great. I, I appreciate all of that. And as a designer and, and you said it up front, but I, I love too how you're, you're actually applying prototyping and iteration too, as you were kind of testing this out. Okay, let's, let's move this here because the, there is something to that. I'm yes. curious, you had said, uh, uh, I, I like to cook, but not a chef, but I, but chefs are, that's, that's a whole game that I find super fascinating. Uh, yes. 
in popular culture, I kind of nerd out on the show Chopped. Yes. Uh, right. It's like, what's in this basket and watching how. Right. Folks, and there's general principles that they apply. Right. I know if I need an acid here, I know if I need fat here. Exactly. But this creativity just like bursts out. It's so fun to to watch. I was curious about the first responders and I'll, I'll qualify this with. Uh, my my dad was a firefighter, uh, and uh, so I've used I've used different types of activities and behaviors from at the fire and in the firehouse when I teach group dynamics on almost mm. shifting gears. But I was kind of curious on how the the first responders came into your your kind of group of people you were talking about. Because first responders have to act so much uniquely situated in the present right and that that is the virtue of improvisation it's it's it is uniquely rooted in the present whether you're talking about rappers or jazz musicians or um outstanding comedians doing improv at second city in chicago they are you they are all about the build and so a first responder has to do that plus detective work plus you know um, really honing in on the situation in front of them, the external environment, well, I'll say situationally, uh, what's the environment in which they found this person. Um, and they have to, um, they, they, they have to both intuit with, you know, as a combination of, of their training and their life and death skills that they have to, to bring to, to, to the task at hand, but also to improvise, to tinker, to hack, you know, I, 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 I'm not, you know, calling first responders nurses, but, but they're, that's, you know, they're related right, ecosystem right. professionally. And I, you know, nurses are some of the most incredible hackers. Nurses are constantly hacking the system to heal and to intuit. And, you know, when, when my dad was dying of cancer and he was in the hospital, it was consistently the nurses who we could go to for the latest update and the real in, intuitive um, compassionate um, understanding of, of where things were much more so than the physicians and the doctors. Um, they, you know, nurses understood the data come, came from all sorts of places. The data wasn't just in the charts. And so, you know, first responders, similarly, similarly, I, I was interested in them because of the ways that they have to intuit in, in such um, a, an adrenaline rush life and death scenario. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the uh, from my perspective, one of the things that uh, I where I use firefighters is uh, just broadly like kind of almost a theory X, theory Y, theory Zs of of leadership. Where um, exactly to your point, it, it, it's so context dependent and situationally dependent that there are reasons why it's it's a top down hierarchy like at the scene because there are so many moving parts that the commanding officer, if if they told you to go somewhere, their assumption is, is that you're there. So like if a building starts to collapse, they know who to call back. Yes. Uh, and then uh, it's a little bit more kind of like uh laissez faire in yes. the firehouse is, you know, especially like positive esprit de corps kind of things, as long as you're not violating principles and you're still keeping it a safe space for others. And then my my dad would talk about kind of the in between was actually uh, when they would get back from a big fire or some of some of the things that looked a lot different than maybe they've seen before. 
Mm-hmm. They'd actually debrief because everybody was almost a sensor on a network. Here's wow. what, here's how it played out. And so then they would have conversations. Should we modify this or not? Uh, and so I just find that uh, I think just like you're talking about the rigor with the creatives and the intuit is they know when to shift gears. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and yet I, I think they'd be hard pressed if you sat them down in an interview under what conditions do you switch gears, right? You know, right? No. It, yeah. It, they'll give you the consulting answer. It depends. Right? It depends. Like, or yeah. the lawyer's answer. It depends. Yeah. And what, I, what I love about what you just shared is that it also reminds me of um, well, Frank Barrett is someone from whom I learned quite a bit, you know, his seven principles of jazz improvisation and what, you know, we can learn from organizations about organizations because of that. And, um, you know, one of the things he talks about are those hallway moments. It's the in-betwixt, the in-between moments and spaces where the debriefing happens, the, the, gener- the generative conversations, the builds happen, the touching base, the, de- you know, it's, it's so interesting how important those, those professionals understand, uh, sometimes consciously, sometimes, you know, not very consciously, but they use those in-betwixt spaces to allow uh, work to flourish. And I, and I think sometimes in our more um, traditional work organizations and more corporate structures, um, we try to control so much of space and time and don't really realize that, you know, organizations are organisms. They're made up of humans. And so, you know, there's going to be so many little bits that, that we need to allow to happen. That's that's great. I want to uh, want to talk about biomimicry a little bit, but I want to get back to uh, kind of Barrett's heuristics. Uh, mm-hmm. You for and and for for listeners of the podcast, if you haven't, Natalie has a fantastic TED talk on uh, on on jazz and improv, and I, I loved I loved the talk so much. Uh, but Barrett's heuristics were new to me when I saw that, and I, I find them. Uh, it's, it's like another design thing when you're struggling with things, then you see it, then you're like, ah, there ah, it is. Yeah, of right? course. <laughs> yeah. And, and those heuristics, and if I'm remembering one of them correctly too, was it, was it retroactive sense making? I thought yes. or reflective sense making. It was, it was looking back to make sense of events. That's right. Retroactive sense making. So we see that in fashion, right? In fashion, it's all about biting off of what has been, how do you do a, a slight iteration of it, a tweak? Um, but yeah, that retrospective sense-making is also something the jazz musicians do. You know, they study the recordings of the different takes. I mean, that was the beauty of so many of the Blue Note records was that you heard various takes in different sessions of the same composition. And you could just like understand the variations that musicians took and the different offerings, you know, depending. And so, um, yeah, the retrospective sense-making is is so interesting because it really shows us the value of context and the value of the build by understanding kind of the lineage from which your work comes and then how you can continue to add to it, uh, reflect on it, acknowledge it, um, and also, you know, one of the, one of the sections, it's a section in my book um, about how there's nothing new under the sun and that's okay. You know, like you, you referenced before we started recording, you know, Austin Cleon about, you know, still like an artist. It's, it's all about the remix. It's all about the mashup. It's all about, um, oh, that's so cool. I would have never thought to do it that way. And what does that look like in this context? And then let, let's see what happens. Um, yeah. And, and so yeah, the retrospective sense making is definitely a cool one. Uh, 
Yeah. And I love, uh, again, so I try to apply a lot of improv principles. Uh, my, my day job, my company, uh, when I started it, I had improv as one of our values. And uh, so, and that was stealing more from uh, comedic improv, right? But uh, the notions of yes and to build, but then also the declare and commit put it out there and commit to it rather, you know, so you're not wishy-washy, but build on the positive. And so I, yeah, I was loving, I, I, I love how you're bringing jazz into this. And I'm just, I'm just looking over at some of the records that I have in my, my office, but uh, one of my favorite things uh, to listen to when I'm trying to get deep work done, I need a little bit of music. Yes. Uh, and I don't do well if there's, if there's vocals, right. And so right. Me uh, too. Miles, Miles Davis, Yes. Is like one of the best things for me to get work done. And uh, years ago, it was a, it had to be a fat finger error at Amazon. But early in the days of Amazon, there was uh, Miles Davis live at the Plug Nickel. And mm. it should have, I believe, you know, it was a multi, multi CD set, uh, but it was available for like uh, $15.99. I think it was supposed <laughs> to be $159.99. Early days of Amazon, Ooh. there was probably a human error. And I kept getting these messages from Amazon. It's going to take a while for us to fill this. We could cancel this order if, if you'd like. I'm like, no, live at the plug nickel for 15 bucks. <laughs> I, I'll wait. Uh, but that was what was interesting. It was multiple nights. So you could hear the same song and where it might veer off in another direction. And, right. and honestly, if you heard them separately, they were both great pieces. And, and yet there seemed to be something, I don't know, for me, this not a great description, but almost warmer that it mm. was just like, ah, there's like all of these variant points where an artist can create. And, and again, each thing is great, but just appreciating both the artistry. And I love your idea too, with, with mix-ups. Cause one of the things that I miss in uh, old school hip hop, mm. kind of the intellectual property rules that have kept sampling out, but Yes. Uh, like for me, some of the, like the heyday of like mid eighties to early nineties were, were just some of the great samples that were mixed into. Absolutely. Hip-hop. And I, and I talk about in my book, how um, the, the late seventies and early eighties saw one of the greatest divestments of funding for arts education, in public schools. And that, that um, disproportionately impacted poor kids of color in our in our cities in American cities and um, some of the biggest casualties were, were, were black teens who you know their options were in you know, the local public school and I, and I marvel about how what did young black male teenagers do in the 80s they, they turned they turned a turntable into a percussion instrument right so the scratch is is a, is an iconic sound in rap and hip hop music, which, you know, hip hop now is the largest music genre in the world, no matter what continent you, you, you go to, hip hop is responsible for democratizing teen culture, teen fashion. When I was a teenager in the 1980s, black teenagers and white teenagers dressed distinctly differently. You know, black teenagers would take their Vidal Sassoon's and their Jordache jeans to the cleaners. You wanted a tight crease in your jeans. And I went to prep school. I went to prep school from seventh through 12th grade. And my white friends, they'd spend 
Goo gobs of money on guest jeans. My mother said, you cannot, you, you can, we cannot afford that. You cannot have a pair of guest jeans, but some of my friends had guest jeans and they would rip holes into their jeans. It was like, you know, and hip hop. Now you can't tell a teenager from Seoul, South Korea, the one who's in Atlanta. I mean, it's, it's like, it, it totally did this mashup. But the other thing I wanted to mention, you know, you said comedic improv is all about, you know, the committing commitment. And you see that in jazz improvisation as well. And there's also, there, there's, there's the yes hand there because there's, there's about like, yeah, commit, keep going. And there's also, and then let it go. Because one of the things I learned from watching an, a documentary about Miles Davis, a man whom I, I admire a lot in terms of his archery, but I would never want to have been in a personal relationship with the man. He was pretty horrible, right, um, but- right. But um, artistically, just a genius. But what I learned about his his artistic process, um, like after cutting Kind of Blue, he never went back to it again. Like he, he moved on. I, I listened to Kind of Blue like once a week. Like, how could you not go back to that? And he and it, but he was always open to learning. He always surrounded himself with musicians who were younger than him to to both groom them and mentor them, but also to learn, like, what are you in? You know, what's that stuff you're into now? How's that go? Oh, let me see if I can, I, I can, oh, this is an electronic thing now. Let me see what I can do with that. So it was, it, I just admire how he was also able to just like, let it go. Okay. Yeah. What's next? That was so cool to me. And, and kind of nerding out on some of those, like the, the others that he's bringing in, working with collaborating, they just flip over the back of those those records. John Coltrane, <laughs> right? I mean, come on, <laughs> crazy, just crazy. On yeah. the on the creativity front too, still sticking with jazz too, because uh, you you referenced it in your talk. But uh, I think one of the uh, a great frame is a quote you had from Mingus in there about uh, making something that's simple complicated. Yes. That's easy, right? Um, yeah, yeah. He said, "Make making the comp." Yeah, I'm gonna mess it up. Yeah. But but yeah, Charlie Mingus basically said that making the complicated, uh, complicated is is easy, but making it simple is really hard, and that's creativity. Yeah. And and the reason I love that quote is also because when you really understand something, you're able to distill it. You're able to break it down to its components. When you don't really understand, you kind of rush all over that. That's another reason why I'm sure you do this in your work. I, I hone the importance of being able to doodle and to visualize what you're talking about because doodling has nothing to do with your ability to draw, but it has everything to do with your capacity to capture complex abstract ideas. If you really understand something that's really kind of complex, which is different than complicated, but right, complex, right. And you're able to distill it down to simple visuals. I mean, that that that's amazing. The other um, uh, uh, jazz musician, I, a quote I I I heard uh, that, that he said, and I heard this actually from Johanna Blakely, and I did I collaborated with Johanna. Johanna is at um, she's a she's a a, a dean uh, at one of the UC schools, and we collaborate on some work around fashion thinking with Valerie Jacobs. But she has a great TED talk. And she cited how um, Charlie Parker, 
apparently said the reason why he got it because he, he he transitioned from the smooth period to bebop which was like wow crazy all over the place and really like at, at its surface sounded really frenetic he 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 half jokingly said that the reason why he uh really got into bebop was so that white musicians couldn't keep copying him because it was so you couldn't you couldn't keep track you just couldn't like where it was just like scattered in these in these scales and and the 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 speed of the tempo um which is incredible so it, it's it's you know jazz is really in some ways uh, a musical art form that really is about hacking the system it's really about i mean all music is about code um but it's really about being able to express um oneself and in, in, in quite in some quite subversive ways Thank you. I want to jump back a little bit because uh, I, I do. I, I, I'm fascinated with uh, all the craftspeople that I get to talk to and their journeys and inspiration. We did talk a little bit about your parents being really helpful in, in basically uh, kind of follow your bliss. Where do you get your energy? That that should be a good place to go when you were in college. Heard heard you, you know, with your kind of lap weave in the in the car. But where because anthropology and fashion design to me are both fascinating, but also that you combine those, but where did your interest in creativity in anthropology? Can you go back and like, is there anything where it's like, Oh yeah, as a kid, this, this is what really spoke to me or some event that might've sent you down this path. I really believe my interest in anthropology just came out of being an incredibly good daydreamer. I mean, I, and I, I mentioned this in the book as well, that like as a first grader, second grader comments on my report cards, I was like, oh, Natalie's doing quite well, but she tends to daydream a little too much and always stare out the window. But for me, daydreaming is just like, like you, 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 you kind of feel yourself going to the zone, you're transfixed and then you whoosh back into the present and everything is like a recharge. And, um, I still daydream and I, you know, I take, I build in daydream breaks into my day and sometimes they're just 90 seconds long. Sometimes I can afford a 15 minute long daydream, but it really helps me to uh, relax the frontal lobe of my brain where I'm doing, you know, that, that super intensive work. So part of it is for me growing up um, daydreaming. I, I was an avid reader. I was a bookworm. I was a nerd. I, you know, the first genre of books that I dove mightily into were fairy tales, which were just these fantastical environments that I was really into mysteries. And then I, by junior high school, I got into um, kind of the European Victorian classics. And I, but I would like go to thrift stores and buy like really aged old versions of the Brontes or something. I mean, that's the kind of kid I was as a, at 15. I started subscribing to the Atlantic. I mean, I was, that was where my head was. And um, so, so part of what I loved anthropology is suddenly I had this frame, this formal framing and structure and process to constantly learn about people who were different from me. I mean, one of the things I loved about reading was I could go into a different geography, a different time, a different, uh, I could be a badass uh, uh, international spy, you know, didn't matter my gender, all, all those sorts of things. And anthropology allows me to investigate. It gives me a formal way to investigate people who are different from me. I mean, the other 
a characteristic of me as, as a kid was when our parents would take us out. I was a little girl who was always like squiggled around the booth and like, would like look at other people and they'd have to like, Natalie, stop staring, you know, you gotta, you know, so that's just kind of always been my personality. So I would definitely trace my, my um, interest in anthropology and other people like that. But I, you know, as, as I'm sharing this, too, I'm also realizing that a lot of my life, I was the other, I was the only black kid in the class. I was the first, me and my sister, like doubled the amount of black students in our the second public school in the suburbs of Philly. We went to like overnight um, when I went to this prep school, a wonderful school, but it was predominantly white school. And so I also experienced being the other, the only one, one of a few. And so I also kind of liked um, understanding a way to explore um, what that's about and and that and that in that position. The fashion piece definitely comes from my mom, women in my family who are really gifted in fiber arts. And I learned to sew. My mother taught us to sew when I was like nine. And so sewing has always been functional art. And I I actually launched uh, my hat design business, Nats Hats Out of Need. I was I lived in New York City. I was in my early 20s. I wasn't making a lot of money. I couldn't afford to buy anything and all the, 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 the boutiques in Manhattan. So I went back to what I knew and I started sewing my wardrobe, my winter coat, outfits for work, hats. And my friend said, Nat, I would buy this. You should start selling this. And I was like, I can't sell this. this is, I just make it. And I was like, well, hang on. As I started looking at like artisans and Soho, I was like, maybe I could do that. So that's how I kind of got into that. But it really, the, the root of, of my interest in fashion, my interest in um, you know, going from an idea to something tangible really stems from my mom and, and women in my family. That, that's great. I, I know as a kid, I, I still think, think of this today is like my, my sewing skills are only good enough to repair something, okay. but I've always been uh, fascinated with friends of mine that do create their own clothes. And it just seems so like liberating that. And, and again, they know how these general principles work and how to bring them together. And uh, so I, I love you uh, talking about your hats and also yes. the, the daydreaming. It, it brought me, I went to Catholic schools for first through eighth grade. And uh, even though my grades were f- fine and in second grade uh, they had to talk to my parents because I had a tendency to uh, they they moved me away from a window because I just stared right. out the window because that it was fascinating. You know, you finish what you need to do with school, and then right the potential stories like if somebody walking, where are they going? What's exactly. going on? <laughs> or that uh, cloud that's just. <laughs> I mean, the window seat's the best. Right, that cloud looks like a dog now. What mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so, and you have lived all over the world, right? Uh, so you mentioned New York, Philadelphia. Uh, I'm assuming because you're still in the Philadelphia area, it's your favorite. Uh, but uh, uh, what, especially with an anthropology lens, uh, just kind of in living in different places, what what do you think that's done to your perspective, living in different parts of the world? Oh, that's a great question. I, for, for me, having the gift and the privilege of living in different countries, it really anchored me in my Americanness. It really anchored me in my unique identity as an African-American woman. It helped me to understand how interconnected we all are. Um, You know, 
when I was a professor, especially when I was leading the MBA program, I started a tradition that really harkened back to how people welcomed me when I lived in Sri Lanka, when I lived in Brazil, when I lived in Germany, when I lived in Israel, when I lived in Portugal. And that experience was being invited into people's homes for, you know, it might've been a national holiday in that culture and I would not have any place to go or any place to visit or be, you know, the equivalent of a Sunday dinner. And I have been sometimes in situations where uh, really humble um, housing or, or surroundings and it, it's, it's truly a reminder of that wonderful quote that um, people don't remember what you say, people do not remember what you do, people remember how you made them feel. And that's, and that is precious to me, how people had the, the generosity and the compassion to invite me into their familial space. So what I started doing when I was uh, leading the Strategic Design MBA program, we would have this annual a barbecue at uh, me and my husband's home. We, we'd invite everyone, everyone who I could think was involved, who, who, whoever, whoever, you know, you know, sweat a drop of sweat to help us create what we were creating or who were students or faculty or contributors in any way. And, and it was just this incredible vibe of the house being packed and, and people outside because always in, during the warmer weather time. And um, I would always invite the president of the university who I really liked and respected, Steve Spinelli. And I remember um, there was one year he came, one year he and his wife were able to come and they came and his wife took me aside and she said, you know what? you're the only faculty member who's ever invited us over to their house. I was like, wait, what? That's crazy. No. Um, but I was just like, you know, why not? I think, I think sometimes people think when, when there's like that status ascribed to, you know, leading the university, you know, you're used to going to the president's home and all that. And I was like, yeah, come to my house. You know, you've been really supportive of the program. Um, but it's, 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 it's that type of um, that the continuity that I, I've been able to be witness to in the human experience that has been such a gift. Um, and at the same time, making me so aware of how I'm, I'm, I'm an American uh, and, and I am specifically a black American woman and, there, and all that comes with that. And it's, it's just, it gives, it has gifted me with an incredible amount of confidence, um, even more curiosity about people who, who don't have my shared experiences. Um, and it's, it's, it's just priceless. Thank you. Yeah. What, um, cause as, as we've been talking about design and your different experiences elsewhere, I'm a big fan from a, from a design, from an innovation, from a curiosity perspective is learning other systems. Yes. Because then I feel like you can start to see some of the principles that that may be helpful or not helpful elsewhere. But to your point, I feel like when we get stuck in one realm, whether that's living in the same geographic region our entire life, uh, whether it's same sets of friends, whether it's the same same movie, same music, right? There's an atrophy, a, like a mental and emotional atrophy, I think, about that. And I've always loved too when especially when I get to talk with uh, designers and artists where maybe English isn't their, their first language and starting to like uh, different customs. And uh, for me, one of the kind of language nerd in me is also idiomatic expressions from other cultures, like how they've yes. captured an idea, but yes, I, I'm, uh, and I used to do this as a, as uh, with my design team, sometimes we, we'd get out and we would do um, we'd have field trips we're going to go look at this. We're going to, you know, and, and just report back what you found, but I'm curious too, for you, uh, 
as you've, if, you know, you, you have fashion, you have jazz, you, you know, you have, you have anthropology, all these things that you've done and you've been able to like seamlessly bring together. But when you're working with corporate clients, how do you help them kind of, um, I don't uh, listen up, <laughs> listen up, loosen up, uh, you know, like not be so stiff, be open to new ideas, uh, you know, because getting in into or getting away from maybe risk aversion and also like self-preservation where it does. And, and sorry, this is so ham fisted this that I've been on this, but your president comment and the president's wife even felt like it's probably risky to invite somebody over. And, and the way one of the things I'm, this is just my mental model I'm throwing out. One of the things I'm hearing from you is we're all people and yes, human to human. Why don't you come on over to our That's place? That's right. That's right. Totally. And um, when we break down our um, our political calculations, because, you know, a- academia, I found actually to be one of the most censored environments I ever worked in, to be quite honest with you. And it's it's highly politicized. There's a lot of tribes. There's a lot of silos. Um, and, you know, I'm sure some people will make a calculation about, you know, whatever, whatever the current climate is. Right. Um, but I didn't care. I was like, well, you know, without this person, we, we wouldn't have been able to do X, Y, Z. So, so I want to, I want to say thank you. And I want to celebrate. Um, so, so part of what I've learned to do when I'm hired by a corporation to help them do something that, um, is requiring change, which is, I'm under the, my work is under the, that rubric of change management, even though I don't, I don't, I don't, I think I'm a lot more additive than what we typically think of as change management, but still there's a couple things that work. Number one, they, they at least have leadership that's acknowledging that we've got a shift, right? So that, that's a plus that's in the plus column. Secondly, what I've learned to do is I, I I've started to acknowledge for myself and I set it up as much as possible. I mean, not in a Debbie Downer sort of way, but this is, this is hard that, that this does not, happen overnight it won't happen overnight and and some of it is just it's just it's just not going and kind of going into the kind of a glib way like this is going to be easy we're just acknowledging um you know at the end of the day we're talking about culture change and i okay this summer i need to create a t-shirt that says it's culture silly because i keep saying yeah. that's really what yep. it's culture silly but but so how does culture shift it starts with a shift in mindsets which leads to shifts in behaviors which leads to shifts in culture. And that doesn't happen overnight. So part of what I do is I acknowledge the reality because I think whenever we talk about change, one of the things we don't acknowledge is the loss. Sometimes leaders assume, oh, if I just, if I lead the chart by saying, look at all that we're gain, well, we will gain. Surely people will get it. Surely people will see. And what I've learned to build in is kind of a loss audit. Like let's put it all on the table. What are, what are we scared of? What are our fears? What do, what do I have? What, what's, what's my little fiefdom? I don't say that way to them, but I get it. Like it's, it's, you know, you, you've worked hard and, and this is something you've built and you're known for like, if we change, what happens to that? Right. So, so what's, what's amazing is that once we put that out on the table, once we acknowledge that that's the fear, that's the loss that could potentially happen. Well, then we can ask, well, well is that true? I mean, is that really true? Okay, and let's play that out. 
let's say that does shift. Well, what else starts to open? Let's say that doesn't really have to shift. And maybe it actually means that uh, you could expand in X, Y, Z weight, right? So part of it is acknowledgement of people's fears of the potential loss and not just bulldozing over that. Um, it's also really important to have a sense of humor. Um, I know that my job is starting to stick and, I'm, and it's starting to work when the, the uh, negative Nancy's in the room. And I always encourage that. I always ask for a mixed group of people who are the doubters, people who have their hands on their hips, as well as the people who, are, who you know, are the allies and really excited because we need to hear those questions. And it's always a wonderful moment when the negative Nancy or the doubter um, puts out maybe a toxic comment or suggestion. And it's not me who has to reframe it. It's someone, it's, it's someone in the group, right? And now I understand, like, I can really start to be the fly on the wall. Now all of the, the shifts and ways of thinking and approaching what we're doing are, are starting to be, they're incubating um, within, within the group. So um, that's a big part of it. And that's a lot of the mindset set shifting. Um, and then it's really also allowing people to then, after we get a, you know, situated in our present state, lay all that out, it's really identifying this audacious future state. And there, there's really miraculous things that happen when you allow people to dream. And when you allow people to say out loud, what could be. Um, and then you have to get to the rigor part and the tactical part and, and really edit and then uh, identify, well, then, okay, what needs to be in place to make that happen? And so that, that's, that's, in a nutshell, the, the process that I use. I adapt it according to the need. I'm always learning. I'm always learning new, cool ways to do my work. But that's, that's what I always try to keep true in the process. I, I love it. Uh, yeah, and I really appreciate you sharing that. And as you were talking about... Uh, the change because people, some people are giving something up or, you know, the, the fear because sometimes uh, some of the projects, at least my experience that I've come in to, to fix really are, were somebody did something brilliant to, to get the organization there, but it's no longer needed. Right. I, I think about a lot of technology, like 20 years ago, somebody figured out how to do this with their database, but it doesn't work anymore, but they built their reputation, right? And their identity right. is tied to that. And so both how do you honor uh, the positive things that we got to here? And I think to your point, recognize that these are kind of killing of ideas and there's loss associated with it, that it's not all rah-rah kind of woo-woo no. energy, right? No. Natalie, I want to dig into on advice. We we uh, kind of name checked Austin Cleon. Uh, I name check him a lot in the podcast. But uh, when when I talk to folks, I, I like to understand uh, either good advice that they've received, uh, and I'm especially curious uh, when it's usually our younger selves that almost mock a wise elder gave us this package that turned out to be an elegant piece of wisdom that made no sense when we were younger, but then reveals itself as we get older, or again, the Austin Kleon notion, when we give advice, we're just talking to our younger self, but either thoughts for uh, of those or both for folks listening in on uh, good advice you've received that it's helped you or advice you wish you would have had earlier. Yes, I'm, I'm starting to compile a list. I'm going to add it to my website of, of my isms that are like this um, 
at this stage in my life, you know, what I know to be true. And, and, you know, the first one would definitely, I go back to what I shared with you at the beginning of our conversation, which is my parents' permission to follow my heart. It was like this weight lifted off my shoulders when they encouraged me to study what I loved. And, and I, and lately I've been really acknowledging how incredibly radical that was of them because I, I don't come from a wealthy family you're talking about two um, Black American parents who came up during segregated times in the United States, Northerners, but still came up during segregated times in the United States. They experienced that. And, you know, both college educated. My, my dad uh, went right into the Air Force after high school and he, he went to college with the GI Bill. My mother was college educated when, she, when they met. Um, and I would say, you know, I grew up in a blue collar community. My parents were aspiring middle class, lower middle class. And for and they sacrificed a hell of a lot for our education. And for them to tell me in 1989, you're good. You don't have to, it's okay. You know, computer science, what economics? You almost failed it. Don't do that. Anthropology, okay, I guess. Yeah, do it. Try it. You know, like. How radical, how, inc how incredible for them. And meanwhile, I'll go, I'll be going home over breaks and family members say, what you, why aren't you studying computers? What are you, what are you going to do with that? You know? And they're saying, no, she's okay. She'll be good. You know? So I so love, I love them, love them, love them. But I, and I really love and appreciate that they, that they did that. So follow your heart is, is my all time favorite. Another is, um, and, and this, this is something I really learned from dance and whatever, whatever your jam is, especially if you, if you have, if you, if you tinker in some form of the arts, one of the things you, you, you learn along the way from really, from your really good teachers is you hear this admonition to always go back to a beginner's class, always go back to the fundamentals. There's always something that you will learn and that you will hone when you go back to Horton technique, modern, advanced beginner, or even for beginner, there's something you're going to learn. And so something that I learned from dance was to commit to the fundamentals. Um, and also that you're going, you're going to get it differently from a different teacher. So always be open to taking different genres of dance. It's all interrelated. Um, the way one teacher explains something will suddenly click to you that you couldn't understand in another. So, so that's another thing that I learned from dance is, is the commitment to the fundamentals and always being able to go back to that beginner's level, that beginner's, well, I guess in design, we call that beginner's mindset. Yeah. Yep. And then the, the third one, and I have more, but I'll just end with yeah. today. The third one I would say is something that is painted on um, the wall of our, of our powder room and in our, in our home, um, which came from a former boss of mine, Jim Schwartz, uh, when I worked in the, in the fashion industry and sourcing, and we were on many a plane ride together to, to Asia. And, and Jim was incredible at just putting stuff into perspective because you have millions of dollars riding on orders of like panties in like flimsy lingerie. And you know, you get all torqued out because there's a strike at the dock or, you know, there was a there was a wedding and the entire village took off. So like there's no one on the factory line and the orders so literally, literally getting your panties in a twist, right? Literally getting your panties <laughs> in a twist. 
and and there were like hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes i said i mean it, 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 yeah. it's it's a large industry people like really underestimate the fashion industry and people getting all torqued out and, he, and jim he had a lot he had a lot of expressions but the one that i painted on our bathroom wall was keep your eye on the donut not the hole and the reason i love that expression is because it's so like zen it's like it's actually very like focus on what is not what isn't it's all about being present. It's all about abundance, not not lack. I mean, it's it's like a, like the more I would daydream about that quote, uh, I was like, that's it's 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 just packed full of wisdom. So that's that would be my third. Keep your eye on the donut, not the hole. So I I because I am just projecting here on me. The first time I heard that, you know, if I heard that from somebody, especially my younger self. I, I think I might have just like cocked an eyebrow on that one, but I, I love it. Like you said, it, it it's very wise, very zen. Uh, were you open to it the first time you heard it, or did you think Jim was? I just think a I little... I forgot everything else he said after because I started daydreaming. I started. <laughs> I was like, I was like, huh. Yes. <laughs> I missed the rest of the lecture. Oh, and uh, and before we go, I just I I, I want to say too, thanks again for sharing your uh, the story of your parent. I mean, and it just. Uh, seems so heartwarming, uh, like especially in these weird years in our lives, these late teens to early 20s, not a kid, not really an adult, where are we going? But just knowing that uh, somebody gave you permission and that they have your back. It, it, yes. And something that I, you know, as I say that I got to remember as a parent, right? That Always uh, we do. Yeah, we- Such we, a touching what? story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to share and um, I, I love, I love the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Natalie is so, uh, it's, it's an honor having you here. So thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your wisdom. And, uh, again, I want to just remind folks to check out your, your book, the creativity leap. And we mentioned a couple of the, uh, uh, talks as well. And I'll, I'll make sure there's links in the, in the description, but just want to thank you so much for joining me today. Awesome. Thank you so much. 